Hello and welcome to the Shiloh podcast. This is the podcast that seeks to shine a light on the stories and practices of religion that have often been used to support rape culture and sometimes to challenge it. Sometimes, as we'll see, the same story can be used both ways. I'm Rosie Dawson and my guest today is... Hello, I'm Helen Painter. I'm a Baptist minister in Bristol. I'm principally a theological educator based at Bristol Baptist College and I'm director of the Centre for the Study of Bible and Violence here. Just tell me briefly how you came to see the need for that centre and how long it's been going. The centre's been going just under two years. Um, I set it up because I've been grappling for some time with the interpretation of violence within the Bible. But as it was emerging and the more research I was doing, the more I was discovering how the Bible is appropriated for purposes of violence as well. So we look at both of those things. We're going to be talking about your contribution to the Routledge Focus series on rape, culture, religion and the Bible. Your book's called Telling Terror in Judges 19. It's the first time in this podcast series that we've concentrated on in detail on a particular story in the Bible. And I just want to alert people who may not know it that it's a truly horrific story of gang rape and murder that can provoke a very strong reaction if you're hearing it for the first time. Uh, but Helen, there's another story that you reflect on at the end of your book from this century, which I think you had in mind through the writing of this one. And another listener alert, it's also really terrible. Tell me about Jyoti Singh. Yes, well, I expect many people will remember this story. It took place in Delhi. Uh, Jyoti Singh was a young woman who'd been out for the evening with a male friend. It wasn't late. Um, Their put-put driver put them down in an unfamiliar part of town and they were probably a bit nervous about that. But they found a bus. Um, It was a private bus, but it was going to their destination. And so they probably thought they were safe. And there were, I think, six men, including the driver on the bus. And what happened was they attacked and beat up the young man. And then they took Giotti to the back of the bus. And they all raped her, including the driver. And they beat her and they bit, bit her. And they raped her with an iron hook so that she suffered dreadful intestinal injuries. And then they threw them both off the bus where they were found and taken to hospital. Jotty's injuries were unsurvivable and she died a fortnight later. But before she died, she was able to give sworn testimony against the men. In one case, the testimony she gave was by means of gesture because she couldn't speak. But the judge at the trial accepted it as true testimony nonetheless. Now, Jyoti Singh was, of course, given anonymity in the court case, but her family allowed her to be named by the media. How did the media respond to her story? Um, Yeah, there's a few things to say, I suppose. The first thing is to say that the family did waive her anonymity in the end, but um, in the meantime, before her name was known, the press kind of gave her a name because they wanted to find some way of referring to her. And they they named her um, Nibhaya, um, and it means fearless one. So that was kind of an interim name that she was, a nickname that she was given, a real mark of respect, and I think a reflection of the way that she fought her attackers both um, in person on the bus and and afterwards through her testimony. But I have to say that um, the press also treated her badly at times. And, uh, for example, they allowed her attackers to testify or to give their stories in the paper and to attack her um, in the paper and uh, at least one of her attackers on record is saying that uh, she deserved what was coming to her because a nice girl wouldn't have been out um, with a man at that time of night. So we'll leave that story there for now. We're already well sobered up and we'll go to the story in Judges. Um, and we're told that a Levite took 
in my translation of the Bible, a concubine. Um, she'd become angry with him and returned to her father's house for four months. He had gone to collect her and they were travelling home and were seeking a place to stay overnight. They were in a situation of danger. They wanted to avoid foreigners who they assumed would pose a threat to them. So they found lodgings in a village belonging to the tribe of Benjamin, which was their own tribe, where they thought they would be safe. And they stayed in the house overnight with an old man. Tell me what happens. So they're, they're in the old man's uh, house for the night. The doors are, are closed up and uh, suddenly there's a banging on the door and um, some of the men of the town um, have have come. They've heard that there's a stranger in town um, and uh, they demand that the man be thrown out to them for them to, um, well, literally the Hebrew text says to know, but um, that's, that verb is, is frequently used for um, for sexual knowledge um, and what happens later makes it very clear that actually they want the man thrown out so that they can rape him. Um, the uh, the host um, tries to reason with them, um, but they're not having any of it. Uh, the situation is, is escalating. It, it's very dangerous. Um, and uh, so the, the Levite takes the woman um, and, and puts her out to them and shuts the door behind her. Before that... The old man has actually offered the men his virgin daughter to be raped, hasn't he? He has. He offers both women and they decline that, which is which is interesting, but absolutely horrific um, that, that he will willingly sacrifice both of those. And, and also interesting that actually in the end, it is only the, the, the one woman who is put out, the virgin daughter, disappears from the story at that point. Um so the woman is, is put out to them, the door is locked behind her, and they um, abuse her all night, which means they, they rape her. Um, and as dawn approaches, she makes her way back to the house uh, where she had, had taken shelter. And she either can't get an answer at the door, or she can't summon the strength to knock at the door because she falls on the threshold, um, and with her hands on the threshold in this um, this kind of image, this almost this still frame of entreaty. Um, in the morning, the husband gets up. It's business as usual. He opens the door. There's the woman. He says, get up, let's go. Um, and she makes no reply. Interestingly, horrifically, the text doesn't tell us at this point if she is still alive or not. So he gets, he picks her up. Um, he throws her over his donkey. He continues homewards. And when he gets home, um, he takes a um, cleaving knife. He cuts her up into 12 pieces and then he takes those pieces and he sends them round to um, all of the tribes of Israel um, as a, to function as a military muster. Um, essentially, he wants to um, and succeeds in um, provoking a military action against um, the people who did this. So just to be clear, he's the one who puts her out to be raped. But now he's expressing outrage at what's happened and he wants some kind of revenge. Yes, but the outrage, as he expresses it, um, is, is to do with what has been done to him. War ensues with some horrible consequences for the unnamed women of Shiloh, after whom this podcast is named. But we're staying with the story and we're looking at what some commentators have made of it in the past. And I suppose the first thing to note is that she's often not the centre of the story at all. It, it's not about her. Yes, um, and, and in a number of ways they have kind of pushed the woman to the edge um, of the text. They have spoken about dishonour that was done to the man. They've spoken about what happened to the woman as averting 
the much worse sin, in quotes, of homosexual rape, also in quotes, because that's a really problematic way of, of expressing what, uh, what they were threatening. And actually, this isn't even just historical. There are modern commentators, too, who've made similar comments. Can you find within the text any justification for the view that the rape of a man, or as the commentators might describe it, homosexual rape, that that is worse than the rape of a woman? The, the, the act of homosexuality is, is viewed, as, as, as you will know, in, in, um, in Leviticus, for example, as, as being something that is forbidden. Um, but at, at no point is, does the biblical text make any comparison between what we might call same-sex rape and what we might call heterosexual rape. And I think the very notion is problematic because actually rape is never an act of sexual desire. It's an act of power, of humiliation. And whether that is conducted against a man or a woman is, is really irrelevant from the point of view of the, of the purpose of the action. Another view you get expressed by commentators, and I'd be interested to know whether these are modern or historical commentators, is that the woman's somehow being punished by God. Yes. So at the beginning of the story, this woman leaves um, her husband or her master. And the reason that she leaves is ambiguous. Um, And so some commentators seem to think that she was angry with her husband, that she was um, that she abandoned him because he had you know, in some way upset her or offended her. And they take exception to that. Um, so medieval commentators talk about this as a, as a morality tale um, to tell women that they shouldn't abandon their husbands, that they should always um, put up with their husbands. But other commentators see her as having been in some way sexually unfaithful to him. Um, and of course, that very much then feeds this narrative of what happens to her being a punishment um, for her sexual impropriety. And I think this is further sustained in their mind by the traditional interpretation of the Hebrew word that describes her. The Hebrew word is pilagesh, and uh, the translation of that traditionally is being concubine. I think it kind of opens up possibilities in their mind that that she is a woman of of loose morality, which in itself, of course, is, is an utter failure to appreciate the power structures that are at play to bring a woman into a position of being a concubine. But actually, the, the, the text doesn't necessarily say that she was in any case. So tell me a little bit about what some feminist critics have made of this story. So feminist critics, in, in uh, response to such appalling um, interpretations, have taken a fresh look at this in, in recent decades. And one of the approaches that, that they have taken is to view the text as itself um, abusive. Um, so a really... Um, uh, prominent and uh, and highly uh, regarded commentator Cheryl Exum um, speaks about the woman as being raped by the pen of the narrator as surely as she has been raped by the men within the narrative. And Exum um, argues that um, on a number of points, um, partly to do with the fact this woman is, is anonymous and, and hence dehumanised. She, she thinks that the character is, her, um, her moral character is kind of left ambiguous within the text, which opens up sort of impertinent speculation that I was uh, discussing a moment ago. She thinks the woman is um, perceived voyeuristically by the narrator. Uh, she thinks that the woman um, functions narratively as a kind of chaotic force that precipitates civil war. And for all these reasons, she considers that the woman is being raped by the pen of the narrator as, uh, as surely as she's raped within the narrative. 
So from her point of view, it's a pretty unredeemable text that doesn't have very much to offer us other than an appreciation of how terribly the woman is treated. But you take a different approach, and I want to look at that by way of understanding some of the decisions that you took in your reading of it. And the first decision you took is to retain the Hebrew word pilagesh to describe the woman rather than use the translation of concubine. Why did you do that? So pilagesh can be translated as concubine. It's also a term that is used to describe a second wife. And so there is there is this ambiguity. Um, and the fact that that ambiguity has been closed down by translators into the into concubine and the fact that then ha- that has then been seized upon by commentators to um, slur this woman's character and to draw conclusions about what she deserved um, is, is so disturbing and so un- untenable um, with a careful look at the text that I wanted to um, avoid any, any dangerous straying into that. And I felt it was the best thing was to leave the, the language open. Do you think there might have been a deliberate ambiguity on the part of the narrator? Um, I think that there might be because Isabel Hamley has done some really interesting work on this and has looked around um, the the way that the the woman is described, her actions um, to do with leaving her husband at the um, at the beginning of the narrative, um, and uh, she argues that the text is um, deliberately ambiguous around whether this woman has been sexually unfaithful to her husband or not, um, and she opens up. Uh, what is a really helpful um, line of, of thought on this, I think, because she points out that the, com- the, the traditional commentary um, that says this woman deserved what was coming to her is is, is dreadfully problematic. And I, I think probably we can all see that. But conversely, the rush to assert her innocence implies that what happened to her would have been OK if she had been guilty. Uh, and Hamley suggests that we leave that open because the text leaves it open because we don't need to assert her innocence in order to um, to assert strongly that what happened was um, abhorrent and should not have taken place. The second decision that you made is to give the Pilagesh a name. Why is that important and what's the name that you decided to give her? Um, anonymity serve, can serve a number of functions within a text, and it can certainly function to ablate a character, to, to minimise them. It can be a reflection of, of, of the, the narrator's lack of interest in that character. And I think that's that's the argument that Cheryl Exon would take about um, this woman's anonymity. I actually disagree with that. Um, but I think as we handle this text, I think it's helpful to give her a name. And uh, I cast about for what name I might choose a number of different feminist commentators who have given her a, a range of names. Um, but I, I felt that the similarities with that Delhi bus rape that we heard um, uh, at the beginning uh, were so striking. Um, and the way that Giotti was renamed by um, the, uh, the newspapers in order to give her dignity when she didn't yet have a, her name wasn't known, um, really touched me, actually moved me. Um, and so I chose for for this Pilagesh, I chose the Hebrew equivalent of the nickname that Jotty was given. The Hebrew equivalent, fearless one, um, is Belief Fahad. And so that's the name that I gave this woman. Is there also a sense in which giving her name gives her some sort of, not control, but power or agency? Yes, but I don't want to, I don't want to argue the converse. I'm, I'm not... I'm not persuaded by the argument that her anonymity within the text in this instance 
is um, is making her is dehumanizing her. No figure in this narrative has a name, which is very striking. One of the things that anonymity can do is um, it can serve to universalize a story. As soon as you particularize it, as soon as you make it about Martha or about you know about Rebecca or somebody we the reader kind of almost have permission to to put it aside and say oh poor Martha poor Rebecca but but that's that as soon as you make this uh, a story about an anonymous woman it kind of opens up dangerous ideas that actually it wasn't just one woman this happened to that this is the sort of thing that can happen it 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 gives it a a, a general idea a, a generalization um which is very potent i think you see in the gesture that Belich Fahad makes when she puts her hands out on the threshold. You see that as maybe her being given some agency. I think she's she's foregrounded in the text in this very tender way. Um, so it's it's kind of to do with the gaze of the viewer, as it were. Now Cheryl Exum says that um, that this is pornographic, the way she's handled and, and I, by the text. And I, I can't, I can't see that actually myself. There's nothing graphic about this. We, we're not, we're not, you know, this isn't Game of Thrones, the way this is narrated to us. Um, the narrator almost kind of t- takes a, a discreet distance. Um, he tells that she suffered, but he doesn't um, take us into the, the close-up of how she suffered. What he does instead is he gives us this almost cinematic freeze frame where she's prostrate, um, with her hands on the threshold, and and I think this this exercises um, what um, affect theorists theorists of of how um, how texts evoke mood, evoke evoke feelings in in readers and watchers. I think that affect theorists would say that she's exercising torsion uh, upon the reader, that she's almost kind of reaching out of the text and and kind of seizing our guts and twisting them. That um, that this is a very powerful moment. I'm reminded when I read this story of, of the images, of the, the dreadful images of, of the gas chambers in Auschwitz, which have um, sort of nail marks on the walls where people scratch the walls in their attempt to, you know, to claw their way to freedom as they were dying. And there's something almost comparable in these this woman, this sort of close-up on this woman's hands as she tries to get to safety. It's, it, it's horrific, but it, it is immensely powerful to the reader and I think that in itself is is expressing something of the way that this woman still speaks to us as it were. You've taken the decision to give a reparative reading of this story so tell me what do you mean by a reparative reading? Yes certainly um, and a, so a reparative reading um, is something uh, came up derived by a um, a theorist called Eve Sedgwick. Um, Sedgwick responded to what she calls paranoid readings, where readers um, look for trouble, as it were. They they look for a text to 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 bother them, to disturb them, and and instead she says, "How about we read the other way? How about we read to look for ways that a text surprises us in a good way?" Um, and that's what she means by a reparative reading. So, what surprises do you find in this story? I think one of the big surprises is the fact that this woman, even though she's deprived of speech in in the text itself, um, actually a- acts very powerfully. She acts very powerfully within the nation after her death because of the way that 
people respond to what's happening to her. But she acts very powerfully um, as a as a kind of almost as a posthumous judge of Israel. What has happened to her functions as a, a, a as a it goes on the charge sheet of ancient Israel. It, it's her story is is used to demonstrate how low this nation has become at this point in its history, and that that elevates her importance. Um, but also in, in ways that we, we touched on a couple of minutes ago, I think that she continues to speak to modern readers today. So I think that it, in, in many ways, this woman is far from voiceless, actually. You seem to be suggesting that Jyoti Singh and the Pilagesh speak to us from beyond the grave. And I'm interested that you call Belief Fahad a prophet. Um, in the Bible... From what I understand, prophets are called by God. It's a role that they assent to. But here I wonder if it's a role that the reader can bestow on belief Fahad. I think we can, and I think it it gives her the dignity she deserves to to give her such a, a title, as it were. Um, but I don't think we've imagined that. I don't think we've read that in. I think that that, that way that she that she functions, as I was um, touching on a moment ago, to to indict Israel, to indict vic- um, modern situations of sexual abuse. Um, I think that, that this is very real, um, and I think perhaps all we're doing really is, is in a way naming what's already going on. We've talked for a long time. Even so, there's lots more in the book, so tell us how we can get hold of it. It's a good idea. If you just pause a second, I'll tell you the name of the website. <laughs> Uh, okay. Um, it's CSBV, as in Centre for the Study of Bible and Violence, csbvbristol.org.uk. And you're also on Twitter. Yes. <laughs> Do you want me to tell you that one? Hold on. I'll look that one up as well. Sorry. Yes, um, at csbibleviolence. And the Twitter handle for the Shiloh Project is at Prod Shiloh. And do subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already at the Shiloh Podcast, all one word, dot captivate, dot FM, or from wherever you get your podcast. Please tell your friends about it. Leave some reviews. Tell us what you'd like to hear about in forthcoming episodes. Next time, I'm going to be talking with Chris Greenoff about sexual violence against men. But now, thank you, Helen, so much for joining me. Goodbye. Thank you for having me. Goodbye.